0: It's not illegal to host a dark website, but what it is illegal is to knowingly help someone commit a crime. So you're talking about child porn and terrorism financing, as well as like huge amount of trafficking of drugs. He has got almost feral intelligence for when he's being watched. Does he know what he was doing and who he was helping?
1: I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. My work as investigations editor of The Sunday World has taken me to some unusual corners of the world. In 2015, my hunt for the elusive godfather of crime, George the Penguin Mitchell, took me to a German town known as Traben Trauerbach, for I was told he was living under the guise of a mysterious businessman known as Mr. Green. Mitchell hadn't been seen for 20 years despite running a drug, gun and money laundering empire that spans the world. When I did find him he was with a strange Dutchman a darknet guru called Herman Zent who lived underground in a bunker and who looked like a villain from a James Bond movie. I got my scoop, but little did I know there was an even bigger story going on under my feet, and that the goings-on in that bunker would lead to a huge trial now underway in Trier, which is slowly beginning to unravel the past of Ireland's most intriguing criminal. Like me, Ed Caesar of The New Yorker also went to Trarbach. But he went to uncover the secrets of that bunker. From SundayWorld.com, this is Crime World. Ed, tell me about that bunker in Trap and Traurback. Okay.
0: The bunker in traben is a nineteen seventies structure, and it's five stories deep. It's in a weird little bit of um, slightly wastelandy countryside on the outskirts of a town. This very beautiful, slightly twee um, uh, town called traben on the Mosel River, and so this, so the, it's called Mont Royal, the place where the uh, the bunker is, and it was built for the German army to um, to house their meteorological division. Essentially, there would be people from the German army being there um, plotting weather patterns wherever the German army were deployed. And I think you might have talked to some people who worked there. I did they said it was extremely weird working there. You know, you'd, like in winter, you'd arrive in the dark, you'd spend all day with no natural light, you'd leave in the dark. And a lot of people just couldn't take <laughs> working underground. But um, it provided a lot of jobs for the local town and and uh, it was a sort of mainstay of the economy. And so the, the German army moved out of there about... 10 or 15 years ago and the bunker was just lying empty. And the German army wanted to sell the, you know, sell the premises. It needed constant care and attention. You know, if you didn't look after it, the, the bottom two floors flooded. You know, the generator needed maintenance. It, you know, for lots of different reasons, it was gonna be a nightmare if it wasn't actually looked after. And so they accepted uh, you know, bids to to buy the bunker, and this very unusual Dutch fellow, Herman Johan Zent, turns up and says he wants to buy the bunker. He's going to host. Uh, he's going to host web servers in there, and there's going to be lots of jobs for the local economy, and people are quite excited about this. They're a little suspicious, and they sell the bunker to him in uh, 2012, and that and that's. And that's roughly how a man called Hermann Zent gets into the, gets into a bunker in Trav and Traubach. And,
1: and some years later, you rattle up, as do I, to this town um in the heart of the Moselle Valley, as you say. You and I had slightly different thoughts about this German Twee town. I found it I found it really quite weird, but I was. Uh, I was there for really quite weird reasons. Um, but it is, it's pretty, it's full of hill walkers. Um, you know, it's very German. And I have to say it was the last place in the world that I ever expected to find Georgie Mitchell.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is is—it is unlike anywhere else I've ever been. What I would say for it, in its defence, just before we get on to, you know, criminal... Uh, you know, uh, crime lords and all that stuff, is that you can get a very good glass of wine in uh, Trav & um which I enjoyed. And it's also got loads of really cool, like Art Nouveau, they call it Jugendstil, which I thought was great. I accept that there are weird aspects of the town. Anyway, it is the last place on earth, on earth, you would expect to find George Mitchell. Um it is not the it's not it's not like a it's not a haven for criminals in normal times, I would say.
1: Definitely, definitely not. I did enjoy partaking the wine myself while I was there, <laughs> but that's maybe another day's story. Um back to this Herman Ghent, uh, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I never seem to get the name right, but um just bring us back uh to the nineteen eighties. Nearly and and then onwards with this strange Dutch man who took an interest in the internet as it was all beginning to start up.
0: Yeah, he's a he's a strange character. He's someone who, as a teenager growing up in seventies, you know, quite rural, not very sophisticated bit of the Netherlands, uh, became entranced by sci-fi you know, the possibilities of this new thing called the internet. When Star Wars came out in 1977, he decorated his bedroom like a kind of spaceship. But, you know, he blacked out all the windows. He had little lights twinkling. And, um, you know, I had a bit of correspondence with him um, in prison. So I wrote, I wrote him a letter. He wrote me a letter back. And he said, I've always been enraptured by by the idea of having a kind of you know, bunker that's all your own. And he, he had it from, like, his friends and his family will tell you that he had it from when he was a teenager. Um, and that, that love of sort of sci-fi and this kind of strange, futuristic aesthetic just stayed with him. And he said, like, it was always my dream to have this underground space where it would just be computers and, you know, flashy lights and you know he called himself he called himself Zent which is like a sci-fi name X E N N T um
1: but ed would sci-fi not bring you up to the sky now is that just completely stupid of me but you know people who are into that kind of thing would they not see spacecrafts and stuff or is it is it normal to want to live underground i don't think
0: it's ever super normal to live underground or to want to live underground but i would i think it was to do with It was like a weird mixture of this sci-fi aesthetic, but also, apparently, he was really into this Second World War bunker that was near his hometown. So that's a Nazi bunker, effectively, near Arnhem. And so he used to go and visit that quite a lot. And he liked the idea of kind of a fortified space, you know, um, that you couldn't, wasn't visible. I mean, a psychologist, I'm assuming, would have a field day with the stuff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Most definitely. Most definitely. Um, in 1995, his dream came true when he bought his first underground bunker <laughs> in the Dutch town of Goes <laughs> near the North Sea. It sounds like a horror show to me. But anyway, he bought this thing and set up kind of, what would you describe it? A kind of a computer company thing? Yeah. Underground? Yeah, he sets up a...
0: Um, he set up a, uh, essentially a server, you know, a server bank. Uh, like he was hosting, it was mostly porn. Like he was hosting, hosting websites. Um, and at that time, the, like, the big money was in like hosting porn websites. So that's what he did. Like I, I talked to a, a guy that ran some of those websites. He said it was like a million euros worth of business he put way a year. So like there was, you know, it was lucrative mid-90s he was making a decent amount of money just from hosting these sites down there but also it had you know it wasn't just a business you know it was like this collective it was a way of thinking about the world there was something oddly idealistic you know they felt the people who were involved in it felt like they were somewhat apart from normal life and normal restrictions and you know, they didn't really respect kind of national borders and so on and so forth. So, like, there was this kind of idealistic, utopian, you know,
1: way of thinking about everything. They were kind of hippies-like, were they?
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's in that, like, cyberpunks, you know, anarchists. It's in that area, you know, like, long hair. They all had, like, you know, Zen wasn't the only one with a funny name. It was, like, Cyber Rob and... Um, What was the other one? Uh, Sidetracks. Like, you know, they were all, you know, they all had these kind of online sobriquets, and they were were involved in what they thought was this exciting new phase of human development, which was that, like, we wouldn't need, you know, nations and police and whatever to tell us what to do because we exist on the internet.
1: But of course, in 2002, there was an explosion in that bunker. And when the... Emergency services arrived. they found the remains of an ecstasy factory. so they they weren't just sort of dreaming of a of a new world order. There was something going on. I think Ghent said that he had nothing to do with it. had rented out the space, is that right?
0: That's right. He said he'd rented it out and he didn't he didn't know you know the people were told him they were a painting company, which is why they needed all these chemicals down there. You know, the story sounds fishy to me, given what we now know. Um, But maybe we can get back to that. But certainly, um, you know, Zen's defence, which was successful, was that he didn't know who he'd he'd sublet that part of the bunker to.
1: So just at this point, I'm going to give a very small background into George Mitchell, because it will be relevant as our story goes on, really. But Mitchell is... As we know here, it was a biscuit delivery man who was part of Martin Cahill's gang involved in the robbery of the bike collection of art and various other things. Um, Around 94, he moved to Holland and there was a a situation there in 98 where he was caught uh, unloading stolen computer parts from the back of a, a van. He spent a year in jail. and Previous to that, he'd been caught here under an operation barbie trying to open his very own ecstasy factory. Now that was significant in the mid 90s because um he believed he could make these tablets himself and if you remember back then everybody was was into e in a big way. They still are maybe but particularly then. So Mitchell is in Holland at this in in the Netherlands at this at this period um and I think maybe for our part, everything goes dark until we get to Trabantarbach. Um, and we go back then to Hermann Gens showing up in this German town and buying this bunker. Um so let's go back to that. And he shows up in this German town. You've spoken, I think, to the Lord Mayor of the town, is that right? I said, yeah. And what, um, what did he say to you?
0: So so the mayor of the town was someone who'd worked in the bunker for for more than a decade. So he'd been a programmer in the bunker. And so he was obviously interested in who'd bought it, not just in his kind of civic role, but in his you know role as just someone who'd worked there. And um, he asked, you know, Zent for a tour and Zent showed him around, you know, and you know, there was nothing obviously illegal going on there. He showed him like this these banks of servers, you know, four floors down. Um, there were places where people were sleeping underground, which the mayor thought was a bit weird um, because the complex had its own kind of barracks and what have you, uh, which were above ground. So, um, but yeah, there, there was this sense that, that it was good that someone was using the bunker and that they didn't quite know exactly what was going on there. You know, there were little rumors that would go through town like, Oh, maybe they're cultivating cannabis in there and, you know, there was kind of suspicions because the perimeter was was uh, patrolled by these, you know, rough dogs. And so sometimes like local people would get kind of annoyed and worried about that. Um, but, you know, Zen seemed to be quite open with local people. And he used to sometimes come into town and eat his pizza and go to a Champions League game and whatever, you know. So
1: it didn't seem like he was hiding. Mm. He promised um, some employment as well for the for the local yes. economy.
0: Yeah, he said there's going to be 50 to 100 jobs, which never materialized. Like the only the only people who worked there were this kind of crew, this kind of slightly interchangeable crew of people from around Europe, maybe two dozen people who would turn up there and live and work there. And occasionally this crew would sort of come into try and try back for a meal and a drink or whatever. or they'd go to the local town of Trier to go to a strip club. Um, but essentially, nobody from the town was employed at the at the bunker
1: um and were the German police looking at him in any way? Were they kind of in the background, were they interested, given his background there in 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 the Netherlands with the underground bunker, his peculiar, Interest, I suppose, in the internet and the possibility he may have been connected with the ecstasy, even though he he wasn't. Were they kind of throwing an eye over him, or
0: absolutely, yeah? So the, as soon as he moved in, they were interested. The Dutch police had been uh, on on Zent's case for a while. Like there was a um, there was a server in a in a server bank in in Amsterdam. That had been hosting Cannabis Road, which was one of the big dark web forums for, for buying drugs. And uh, so they were, you know, they had their eyes on him and they, I think, were talking to the German police. The German police were for the for the moment Zent turned up there, were interested. But I don't think actually it was until you turned up that they got very interested. <laughs> because that was when the kind of Mitchell connection. Uh, you know, became much more, became obvious to them.
1: And of course, I showed up purely for Mitchell and not for what was going on in the bunker, although it came on my radar. I had got a tip off that Mitchell was in the town and had moved there. Mitchell had been missing as such from the media for nearly 20 years. He hadn't been photographed, he hadn't been seen. We had followed his trail to Morocco, all these Suggestions that he was living in Turkey, had a house in Kashmir. Um, Anyway, that's how I ended up there. And uh, I didn't believe that I was going to see Mitchell until I was standing on one of those bridges in that picturesque town and I saw a human penguin waddling towards (laughs) me because um, if anyone has a nickname in gangland, his one is apt. But yeah, while there, obviously, I discovered that he was... um, he was friendly with this odd Dutchman with his hair, his white, grey hair down his back and his leather Nazi-style trench coat down to his ankles. Um, they were peculiar-looking walking around the the town. But so after then, that was 2015, what happens next? Because that's really where, where your investigation comes in. Yeah, so the, so the German...
0: Police go to a judge and say, "We want uh, to to listen to his phones, to Mitchell's phones, and they get a warrant to listen to. I think it's sixteen of his phones. Um, but Mitchell does, or like he either talks in code on his on his you know Nokia's or whatever he's using, or he uses the private encrypted." phone network that is essentially what you know most criminals were and are using these like private networks you pay a huge amount of money to be on the network you get this you know exclusive app that only you and your colleagues and sort of uh, business partners are going to use and that's meant to be more private it has a panic button so you can press a button and all the messages disappear Um, so they never got Mitchell saying anything very interesting on those phones.
1: But what they did discover, I think, was that Mitchell was there for a purpose, and he was there to go into business with yes Ghent, and that they between them were hoping to set up one of these encrypted phone networks. Yeah, that Mitchell would be the salesman with all his contacts in organised crime and. Gent would be the developer or yeah, the designer like, he would oversee the development and I think you know Mitchell
0: did work I mean what we do know is that Mitchell did work on that business because he was selling the things into the Medellin cartel and to you know gangs in Spain and so on so like he definitely worked on it from what we understand from those taps like he was he was actually working on that business
1: mm. So this investigation has is is much bigger than Mitchell. Obviously, our interest in it here in Ireland is is in Mitchell and his bizarre involvement in this. But this investigation went on for nearly four years. This wiretapping and yeah. So the, so the biggest
0: thing, the biggest problem that the German police had was it's not illegal to host a dark website on you know anywhere. You know, so someone who has the server isn't necessarily criminally liable. But what it is illegal is to knowingly help someone commit a crime. So that's quite a thin, you know, legal line that you're that you're trying to you're trying to work out whether this person who has all these servers for all the world's worst dark websites. So you're talking about child porn and you know, terrorism financing, as well as, like, just, you know, the huge amount of trafficking of drugs, which is what was happening. That was what was flowing through the bunker, really, in terms of these sites. So you're trying to work out, and this is the, what the court case is now about, did Zent know and did he help them? Did he know what he was doing and who he was helping? And so they did all these incredible things in this investigation. Like, they set up their own fake dark web casino sites. And they got into conversations with people in the bunker about, you know, could you help us do this and that? And so the the police were like, they used subterfuge, they used human informants, the gardener um, is a police informant, you know, the gardener at the bunker site, which is so old school, Um, you know when I talked to the police, they said, we used a variety of 21st century and 20th century policing methods. <laughs> but like, that's what they were doing. They were trying to, they would, you know, they were mirroring the non-encrypted traffic that was coming in and out of the, of the wires into the, into the bunker. And this was never totally verified to me, but seems almost nailed on. that They installed a kind of spy server Onto the into the server bank, so they were able to see what was going in and out of these computers. Um, because an intern found a server that did not belong underneath the floorboards in 2018. So, like all of these crazy methods, but they were there was a little team, and I went and visited them in a in a. Residential building in, in Mainz, a nearby city, and they were all looked about like twelve years old. Um, you know, really unconvincing facial hair. They had like a break. They had a Breaking Bad poster on the wall with Walter White saying, "I am the one who knocks." Um, you know, they all like giggled when they were t- talking about <laughs> um, they were talking about their work. But they were really, really good. They were like brilliant at their work, and they through kind of old fashioned and. Uh, 21st century methods apparently were able to gather enough evidence that Zen knew exactly what he was doing.
1: Well, interesting you should say that because, uh, yeah, there was something so modern and so futuristic about that bunker and what was happening in it. Um, to me, it was extraordinary that Mitchell, a man in his coming up to his early 70s now, would be investing because that's what he was doing, investing his money in it. And... At the same time, we were able to follow them in old school ways. They went to the same place in the morning for their breakfast. They went to the same restaurant for their for their lunch. You could quite easily pick them up from a surveillance point of view. So they were sort of operating this very futuristic world and on their BlackBerry at the time. Anyway, Mitchell had phones and uh, I think they're, they've been left behind now. But... Um, yeah, there was a mix of the old and the new with, this, with the whole thing. I think the that German police team, they lost Mitchell. Yeah. He, he fell off the radar. Do you know why that happened? Well, the
0: only thing I would, the only thing I can really think is that Mitchell knew that something was up. And talking to um, uh, a couple of good sources, in in Ireland, who had, you know, been in the police when uh, he was doing his work in the 90s, they said that Mitchell did have a talent for slipping the net. Like he has got a almost feral intelligence for when he's being watched. And, you know, I think possibly your visits would have spooked him. And you know, it wouldn't have taken a lot more after that to, for him to say, I need to get out of here. I mean, in fact, I think he and Zent had a business dispute. Um, but it might just have been prudent for him to cut ties uh, at a certain point because he could sense probably that there was this bigger picture here, which was that Zent himself is under surveillance.
1: And funny, the, so the trial has started into all this in, in Trier, in yeah. Germany, and it's expected to last until December 2021. <laughs> a long trial. <laughs> um, yeah, imagine covering that. But uh, Zent is facing 250,000 different criminal offences, and he's denying all of them, but Evidence so far has been heard. So while the criminal investigation seemed to have lost Mitchell, he fell off the radar in around 2017. Uh, some of the witnesses have spoken about him because down there he went under the name of Mr. Green and uh, put himself forward as a businessman. But some of the witnesses have said that him and Ghent, Zent fell out over money. And what essentially would be a small amount to Mitchell, who is a multi-multi-millionaire, as the German police files have shown. He has investments all over the world and has been involved in massive-scale drug trafficking and gun trafficking. Um, but the files say, or the, sorry, the evidence has suggested that he may have known Ghent way back into the 90s when he first moved to Holland and that he might have financed that original bunker. In your investigation, did you come across anyone who could tell you anything about that, about the longevity of their relationship?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that, that was the most fascinating thing that there was a there was a guy called Martin Berger who was involved in a business with Zent back in, would have been the mid-90s. And he remembers... Mitchell and Zent hanging out together. He, uh, you know, there was a um, there was another source who told me that uh, Mitchell was providing computer parts to Zent. Um, but certainly, they were really close, and they went to dinner a lot. They, you know, um, and this this guy Berger said to me. You know, I didn't know who Mitchell was. Like, I didn't know what his stasis was or, like, I knew that there was something not right because he used to carry 12 phones around in a little bag. Um, (laughs) But...
1: Back in the 90s? Yeah. My
0: God. He used to have have 12 phones in a little bag, each with its number written on the back so he could remember which one was which.
1: I remember how big phones were in the 1990s. I'd say he would a rucksack for them.
0: Well, he said, uh, this guy... I had to look this word up. He said he had an etui, which was like a sort of man bag, um, which is <laughs> um, sort of a man bag for your mobile phones. It's hilarious. And then one of them would ring and you'd have to fish around for them. Um, so yeah, and he didn't know who Mitchell was. So he used to call him Charlie Chaplin because of the way he walked. And it's like, here's this kind of, you know, mid-ranking. And as far as I can see, straight Dutch businessman who's now works in healthcare, you know, and he's going out for dinner with Zen and Mitchell, teasingly calling this guy Charlie Chaplin and not knowing who he is. And clearly the relationship was strong at that stage. And it, it wouldn't it be interesting, given what we know about Mitchell trying to set up the Ecstasy Factory, given what we know about what happened in that first bunker, if in fact Mitchell had financed that first bunker? Because that would deepen the story.
1: Wouldn't it just... And I do think that over the course of the next um, 12 months that there is going to be further threads to this story that will emerge from the evidence during this trial. Um, You know, it's only a few weeks underway so far. And those tidbits of information, when you put them together with the rest that you have, they do form quite an interesting picture because the goings-on in Mitchell's life from when he really left here to go to the Netherlands, are sketchy. So obviously, Ghent is an, a, a very interesting, um, you know, person who may have been associated with them all the way along. I have to ask you, Ed, you've covered all sorts of stuff and your uh, investigation into this dark net bunker can be read on The New Yorker. Um, do Have you ever covered a story as weird? <laughs>
0: um I mean this had this had its own very specific weirdness. Like there was a moment there was a moment when I was meeting someone who was involved with the bunker called Sven Campois, really deeply, deeply weird man, very strange, creature of the internet, who no one's seen since. Huge bushy black eyebrows, like. He was dabbing at like pus that was running from his eyelid. (laughs) Um, Like he ordered so many cups of coffee, his his whole body was shaking. And um, this was the guy that called himself the Prince of Cyberbunker, and he hasn't been heard from since. You know, he's. I'm pretty sure it's because my piece named him as a informant, as a police informant, or a likely police informant. And so. I was sitting there in this little station cafe in Middleburg, in kind of nowheresville in, in the Netherlands, just on the coast, and talking to this guy about this weird, weird stuff. And I got back on the train and I thought, this is not a normal job. This is a very, this is a very strange job that I have. Like this is definitely a job. But most people would not recognize it as such, like, go and talk to, you know. So when you'd normally, you'd cross the road to avoid, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I know the feeling. I know yeah. the feeling. Finally, though, in the midst of it all, I think you spoke to Zen's family, and they were really quite ordinary.
0: They were. They were lovely. They they, they don't like me very much now because I've sort of laid out what what he was up to, but... They were very ordinary, lived in a nice kind of um, middle-class village. He was an auxiliary firefighter. He wore a little beeper on his belt, you know, in case there was an emergency. Um, They were really respectable. They, you know, invited us in and gave us lots of nice, you know, food and drink. And they were very loyal to this, you know, to this kind of black sheep in their family. They were quite proud of him in some ways because, you know, he'd done something extraordinary with his life, which he definitely has. Um, But, yeah, I felt for them um, because all of this kind of criminal heat had come on the family, which they didn't really deserve, except for the fact that they turned a blind eye to the the things that they knew about. They knew, for instance, that some of these servers were hosting child pornography because the police had turned up and told them what was what they were looking for. They knew that Zent was involved with Irish gangsters because an Irish gangster turned up at their house <laughs> asking for him, you know, and, the, and this guy, René, had to turf him out.
1: Was that in recent years?
0: Yeah, it was in the last two or three years, yeah.
1: Okay. And had they any knowledge of... The elusive Mr. Green or Georgie Mitchell. Had they ever met him?
0: They wouldn't tell me. I, I'm sure he wasn't a stranger to them. Because Rene, the brother-in-law, had visited the bunker. And in fact, Zent had offered him a job down there in the early days of the bunker, which he had declined quite wisely.
1: <laughs> an incredible story. And I think that we'll we'll keep an eye on this and we'll 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 follow the trial over the coming months and um, you know, maybe some clarity about that relationship between um the penguin and his James Bond yes look-alike Mr evil friend will <laughs> will will emerge as the time goes on thank you very much Ed
0: thank you so much my pleasure
1: from sundayworld.com this is crime world produced by Ian Mullaney. Available online and on all podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. And if you want to get in touch, check out our Facebook page. Prime World with Nicola Talent.